Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, I definitely don't believe in Jesus. It's obviously an ancient myth. And, you know, even the Jesus story, his biography, is, is completely unoriginal. He makes outrageous claims. He claims he has the authority to forgive sins and the power to raise the dead. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that. Do you, so you do think he was a real person? Most of the scholars I've talked to say he probably was. The evidence is not great, of course, but... There's lots of rules about slavery in the Bible. None of them are, don't do it. They never even thought to say that. I read about Jesus seemed to be a really good guy. They killed him. That's just the nature of people. So what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived, plus a myth, and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that. Do I believe it? Of course not. It was written by people in the Bronze Age who didn't know what a germ or an atom was. And Jesus healed everyone that he, and he couldn't walk and now he touched me and he can walk. I don't know what to do with that. The Jesus of the Gospels is either God in the flesh or a terrible imposter. There is no middle ground. Who do you think he was? Well, God is real, Jesus existed, he was a badass outlaw, and has changed my outlook on life. And so in some sense I believe it's undeniable. Hey guys, Mark Clark here. I am so glad to be joining you guys today to talk about this very important question, which is the question of, did Jesus Christ actually ever really claim to be God? Because there's obviously such debate about this among religions and people. Did Jesus actually claim this about himself? So let me start it this way. Years ago, there was a broadcaster, you know, Larry King, the interviewer, and, and, and they asked Larry King, if you could interview one person in all of history, who would it be? And without hesitating, Larry King said, Jesus Christ, that's who I'd want to, you know, out of everybody in history, that's what I want. And they said, okay, but you only get one question to ask Jesus Christ, what would it be? And Larry King just said, it would be the question, were you really born of a virgin? And he said, because the answer to that question changes everything. And Larry King was right. Everything hinges on what you believe about Jesus, his, his essence, who he was. For instance, if, if what Jesus claimed about himself, which we're gonna explore, is not true, then we can all just carry on with our lives. We can explore different faiths and ideas about ultimate things. But if it is true, then each one of us have to take stock and change the entire direction of our lives because he claimed things about himself that demand our full allegiance of our hearts, our minds, and our lives. So the question of Jesus' virgin birth is one of the many aspects of his person and work and message which are considered essential Christian doctrine. So the question of his being God is one of the others, and the two are directly connected. His being God actually necessitated his being born of a virgin as not to be born into sin by being confused or conceived of a, of a human father. So that's why Larry King's saying, if Jesus is born of a virgin, I gotta figure that out. If he's God, I need to reorient my whole life around him. And we can't ignore that. And so it, it, we gotta change the whole direction of our lives, the way we raise our kids, the way we go to the grocery store, what we talk to our friends about, everything changes if Jesus is God. So. 
A few years ago, a couple of Mormon missionaries actually came to my house and I invited them in and we started to talk about God for hours, the Bible, Jesus, everything. And they explained their view on Jesus. And then I explained what the Bible actually said about Jesus. And they said, yeah, 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 bro, we're saying the same thing. We're in the same ballpark, they said. I'm like, guys, we're not even playing the same sport. What are you even talking about? I'm saying that the one true God of the universe, the creator, the redeemer, God Almighty, became a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, lived a sinless life, never married, went to the cross to die for sin and was resurrected three days later, victorious over Satan, sin and death in order to save people, not by what they do, but by what he has done for them. And you're saying that Jesus was a demigod, a polygamist and a half brother of Lucifer. God, we're not even in this, we're not even talking about the, the same language. And this is important. We gotta realize that this claim about the person of Jesus is so central to the question of his life and our life. It's the question around which all others orbit because if he is God, then retroactively we look back at creation itself as the Apostle Paul does in his letter and a bunch of letters that he writes. And we see not only as we discover that, that, hey, does creation point to the fact that there's a God in the universe, but more, it points to Jesus specifically himself. That's the climactic moment of the creation story. See, once we realize Jesus is God, then we go back and we read Genesis 1, the making of man and woman in the image of God himself. And Jesus then becomes the ultimate fulfillment to what that ever meant in the first place. The fusion of being God and human at the same time. It was always a pointer to Jesus, the second Adam, Paul calls him in Romans 5. So one writer has says that, I believe, is what it means to speak of Jesus being truly divine and truly human. Once we remind ourselves that humans were made in God's image, that this is not a category mistake, but the ultimate fulfillment of the purpose of creation itself, then we see it in the face of Jesus. That is a deep and staggering reality to be faced, guys. So we might be getting ahead of ourselves jumping right to that because in this great faith debate that we're in in life, we might agree that if Jesus taught that he was God, and it can be demonstrated that he was in some way that we should all allow him, follow him and give our lives to him if that can be proven. But a person might say, I haven't been convinced. And maybe that's you. I, I'm not convinced that he actually did claim this about himself or that he demonstrated it. So until then, I don't have to do anything. I'm just gonna go along with my life. And I meet lots of people like that. They like Jesus and they respect Jesus maybe as a teacher or a revolutionary, but they don't worship him and follow him in their life because they aren't convinced he really is God. And so, he doesn't demand any allegiance from me. I'm not going to worship him. Fair enough. And if that's you, I'm glad you're watching this. I'm glad you're here. So we got to back up and answer that foundational question first and then figure out the implication for our lives. So did Jesus actually ever claim this to be God? And if so, what did he call people to do about that? Where does this idea fit in regard to other religions in the marketplace of ideas? So we're going to look at all of those. So let's draw it back to the basic question. First, did Jesus ever claim to actually be God? So it's super popular today to say he actually never claimed that. And what most people mean is that, what Je that Jesus never said these three words in this order, I am God. And technically, and I know I'm a pastor, so you gotta hear me say this, that's true. He didn't ever say that. But we do not have a written record of Jesus saying a lot of things, and we don't have a written record of him putting those three words in exactly that order in that way. But 
Does that mean he never claimed to be God? No. All that means is he never put those three words in that exact order. In every way that mattered, both to his culture and, as we're going to see, to our culture, Jesus did claim to be God in a clear and direct way using stories, questions, symbols, and behavior, which were central to the world in which he lived and taught. And that's one of the most essential parts of this question. Seeing Jesus in his historical cultural context versus ours, to be able to actually understand what he's claiming about himself, because if we don't understand what his claims in his context, we run the danger of being misunderstanding him and twisting and relativizing everything he did. For instance, in the context of some Eastern philosophies, even today, and religions, including many New Age teachings that maybe some of you have read about or met people, and maybe you hold some of these ideas. In some of those ideas, Jesus claimed to be God may not actually be that scandalous because you might believe that in some way, as Eastern philosophies do, that all human beings are gods in the sense of divine. So C.S. Lewis said, among pantheists like, uh, like Eastern mystic thinkers, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There'd be nothing very odd about it. So this is why Jesus goes further than claiming to be God in some generic sense, which could be misunderstood depending on a person's definition of the word. To scandalize in the fact that he identifies himself not as a God or, or part of God, or even as we're going to see God in the modern Western world defined kind of way, the, the deistic, you know, absentee landlord, God of Bette Midler is like, from a distance, the world seems brown. <laughs> like like oh, that kind of God. He's not claiming to be that. He's claiming very specifically to be Israel's God, thus the God of the whole world. The God who saved Abraham and called Moses, the God who made all things, is over nature and is sovereign and who alone forgives sins and deserves worship. Jesus gets more specific than I'm God in whatever way you mean the word. He goes further, identifying the exact God he claims to be. And once we understand that, now the scandal becomes super clear. To claim to be God or a part of God in some cultures may have been no big deal, but to claim it in Jesus, first century Jewish context meant that you be killed. One of the most important doctrines of Judaism, where Jesus was born into, versus kind of how we live our lives as Canadians in the just modern Western world, was monotheism, right? The, the belief that there's only one God. And that idea was held in direct contrast to every other religious system of the time. Every other religion had a pantheon of gods that you worshiped, but even in the face of pressure and persecution to believe otherwise, Jews never wavered. There's only one God in the universe. His name is Yahweh. And for an observant, faithful Jew like Jesus, who loved God and loved God's law, to claim to be God meant not that you were one of a million other gods, some generic deity, or a part of God. It was a claim to be the one and only God of the whole world. And so that's why Lewis says that the scandal is that among these Jews, there turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. And when you have grasped that, you're going to see what this man said was quite simply, Lewis says, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Are we going to let that shock affect our lives? So in other words, 
you may claim to be God if your concept is that there's many gods in the world, right? Polytheism or pantheism where everything is God, because that would mean you're just one example among others. But to be a monotheist and claim to be God is to say the gods of all the other religions are no gods at all. There's only one true God in the whole universe. And, and Jesus says this, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, John 17. And then he says, and I'm him. Such a claim within the Jewish worldview was absurd because the Old Testament already made it clear. In Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man. So such a claim was reason enough for the Jewish elders to request capital punishment for Jesus under the charge of blasphemy. So this turns out to be one of the charges laid against Jesus at his trial. Jesus claims that he'll come on the clouds one day bringing judgment on the world and their response, if you read Mark 14, is what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy literally technically means the act of claiming for oneself the attributes and rights of God. So why did the Jews come to see Jesus' life and teachings as blasphemous? The Gospels make the case that they did so because Jesus made it very clear he was God in both his, here's what Luke 24 says, in his words and his deeds. So here's what we've said. Most modern people are willing to admit that Jesus existed, right? He was a good teacher and many, even the most progressive ideas say there was a good chance that Jesus healed people, that he did miracles. Historian N.T. Wright actually points out that Jesus' contemporaries, both those who became his followers and those who were determined not to become his followers, certainly regarded his as, him as possessed of remarkable powers. Jesus was possessed of remarkable powers and the church did not invent the charge that Jesus was in league with Satan, but charges like that are not advanced unless they are needed as an explanation for some quite remarkable phenomena, N.T. Wright says. So all of that's pretty standard, but when it comes to the idea that Jesus is God, most people hesitate. So J.I. Packer says the real difficulty the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation, meaning God becoming human. That, Packer says, is the real stumbling block of Christianity. And there's two reasons. Either people already have an idea of who God is and they can't fit Jesus into that, or we have an idea of who Jesus is and we can't fit God into that. So when we study his life and teachings, we see that he challenges both of those modes of thought and presents to his listeners a radical picture of both himself and God. So, so before we explore Jesus' claim, it's important to understand what other worldviews and religions believe about Jesus. In other words, who is Jesus among other gods? So let's go through a couple of these. Buddhism, Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism teaches that Jesus is an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but was inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus was merely the archangel Michael. He was a created being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who, who became one of many gods and that he was a polygamist and a half-brother of Lucifer, as I already mentioned. And New Age guru Deepak Chopra says that Jesus Christ is a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to, whether he really existed or not, not a big deal. And Scientology, the religion of Tom Cruise and John Travolta and others, teaches that Jesus was an implant forced upon Thetan about a million years ago. 
Thetan you'll have to look up. That's not me lisping saying Satan. Thetan is a different character altogether. So when you study the life and teachings of Jesus and his earliest followers, as recorded for us in the Bible, it becomes apparent that all of these portraits of Jesus are actually wrong. Some more than others, but all of them in essential ways. And thus all of them and many more like them got to be dismissed by constructing an actual portrait of Jesus from the Bible alone, rather than later findings or, or teachings of people or groups long after Jesus himself walked to earth. So recently I went on a walk with a friend who is starting to explore Christianity. And he had a lot of questions about what other religions and cults taught about a number of topics. So he was constantly on these walks. We'd walk along and get coffee and he'd constantly go, what do, what do, what do other religions teach on heaven? And then we got to go through And what do other religions teach on hell? And we go through, we compare, you know, Christianity and salvation and God. And he was getting confused by all the details. And so we were struggling with it. And finally, I just said, listen, if you want to get to the root of the issue, then there's only one question you got to ask. Is Jesus Christ God or not? In other words, Explain who Jesus is when it comes to comparative religions. This is where Christianity is unique from every other religion in the world. This is the place where it parts with the rest of the world because it says that he is and always has been God and should be followed and worshiped. So why does it teach us? Because only Jesus himself claimed this. So let's talk about that now. We've said Jesus never said the words, I am God, in those direct, exact order. But he did say things that people in his culture rightly interpreted as him claiming to be God. So I'll give you an example. In a heated debate with the Jews in John chapter 8, they ask Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? And then they bring up Abraham. And Jesus' response is culturally and religiously one of the most scandalous things he could have said to them. So John chapter 8, verse 56 to 59, he says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old yet. Have you seen Abraham? So right off the bat, Jesus claims, hey, by the way, I've had this conversation with Abraham and he was kind of looking forward to me. And they're like, bro, you're not even 50. You want to talk about Abraham? How many years ago was Abraham alive? So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He drops this mic, not only saying, so, so and then it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. No idea what that means. Does he disappear? Has he got the ability to go invisible and just start walking around? Whatever it is, he himself goes out of the temple, he hides from him. So here's why this claim is actually scandalous in two ways. First, Jesus affirms what theologians call the doctrine of pre-existence, <clears throat> that Jesus existed as God before he was born in Bethlehem, before Abraham was I am, he says. So Abraham had lived over 2,000 years before Jesus, yet he claims to have existed before Abraham. So he's not saying that he was a human being before Abraham, walking around on earth back then, he's just been hanging out. He's affirming the fact that he did exist somewhere and in some form. It's the same thing the Apostle John alludes to when he says in First John 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
So the emphasis of 1 John is not simply that he was born, but that Jesus already existed somewhere and he has come into the world. And later in John, Jesus refers to his pre-existence and he's praying in John chapter 17 in the Gospel of John. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I mean, these are crazy claims. And this is why Jesus speaks of himself as coming from and originating in heaven and not on earth so many times in his ministry, right? John chapter three, he goes, no one has ascended into heaven, he said, except he was descended from heaven, the son of man. In John six, he goes, for I am, I have come down from heaven, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And in John's gospel alone, Jesus says he's a missionary sent from heaven to earth no less than 39 times. So he is super unique among the founders of all world religions in this claim. Muhammad didn't claim this, Buddha didn't claim this, Krishna didn't claim this. So this is what Jesus is claiming. Here's the second thing that's crazy about John chapter eight. Jesus is claiming to be Israel's God specifically. He uses the phrase, I am, in John 8, verse 58. And that reference is super veiled for modern people. Like Canadians walking around, you're like, whatever he said, I am, it's just bad grammar. That's not what he's doing. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament kind of running as music behind them, it was clear as day for the people Jesus was speaking to, which was first century Jewish audience, I am, it was not bad grammar. He could have said before, Abraham was, I was. He doesn't say that. He talked about his pre-existence, he says, I am. But the scandal is that I am, literally is the Greek phrase, ego emi, it's the name for God from the Old Testament. And Jesus is taking ego emi, the thing that, you know, God shows up to, um, uh, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and Moses asks, and, and he says, hey, Moses, I want you to go speak to Pharaoh, set the Israelites free. And Moses says, well, if I go to the people of Israel and say, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me, uh, what's his name? They're going to ask me. So what should I say? And God says, I am that I am. And he says, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you in Exodus chapter three. So the meaning of that phrase is I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. So the word Lord, when spelled out with capital letters in your Bible, that stands for this word. It's the divine name Yahweh, which is used thousands of times in the Bible and is connected uh, to the verb to be in verse 14. I am was one of the most sacred names for God, verse 14 of Exodus chapter three. And Jesus takes that name and applies it to himself. And he says, that's me. I'm the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and told him to take his sandals off, who met him on the mountain, whose presence filled the temple. I am that God who called Abraham and entered into covenant with him. I am. Now, it's crazy. Some Modern scholars, ergo, look at that and go, okay, we got to debate whether this interpretation is reading way too much into just that phrase in John chapter 8. And they wonder whether Jesus' original hearers would have actually deduced all of this from him saying that one phrase, which is a legitimate question. Maybe you're watching this and you're saying, come on, they didn't read all that into it. Listen, you don't have to go very far to find the answer to that question. The story tells us exactly what they thought and responded. In John 8, verse 59, it says this, they picked up stones to throw at him. That's how they interpreted what he was saying. In that culture, throwing rocks at people wasn't about bullying them. It wasn't about beating them up. It wasn't about playing games. It was about killing them. They're trying to stone Jesus of Nazareth to death. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. 
Some have said they do this because they misunderstood Jesus, but the opposite is actually the case. They understood fully what he meant in that phrase. And just three chapters before John 8 and two chapters after John 8, they do the same thing for the same reason. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and a debate arises whether this work, whether this is considered work on the Sabbath and should be punished by stoning him, right? He heals a guy. It's the Sabbath day, so you're supposed to rest. He heals a guy and they're going, I don't know if he's supposed to. So Jesus enters into this debate. And he says in, in John chapter five, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now we may read that and, and not see the underlying meaning of what Jesus is saying, but the Jewish people's response makes it exactly clear they knew what he meant. This was, one writer says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, John chapter five says, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, listen to this, equal with God. John chapter five, verse 18, that's what it says, making himself equal with God. They rightly gathered this to be his meaning, not from the mere words, my father, but from his claim of, of the right to act as his father did. He's working, I'm working. And by the same law of ceaselessly doing things for creation, they go, he's actually acting as God. And instead of instantly disclaiming any of this, as he must have done if it was false, he positively sets his seal to it in the following verse. And he explains how consistent such claim was with the work of his father. John chapter five, verse 19 to 24, he says, listen, it's beyond all doubt that we have here an assumption of participation in the father's essential nature, one writer says. Meaning, later on in John five, he says, me and the father, we are one, and he goes on and on and on in all kinds of different contexts through the gospel of John. In John 10, as Jesus is walking around the temple during one of the Jewish holidays, some people gather around and they ask him to tell them plainly whether he's the promised Messiah. And he says, I told you, John chapter 10, and you did not believe. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, mic drop. Not just in our English translation in, in 2023, I'm talking about first century Jewish thing. They would blow their, it's like a grenade into the culture. And this is what he means by this last phrase right here is not that he and the father are one person, because there's three distinct, unique persons who make up the Trinity. They're eternally one, but eternally distinct. It's not that they're one person, that it's that they're one thing which is why he uses the plural form, uh, uh, me and the Father are, like I and the Father are, but follows it up with the singular word one or one thing. His point is that while the two are eternally distinct, they are one in essence and nature. Again, will we miss the deeper meaning to it? The Jewish response leaves no doubt as to what he intended. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, John tells us in John 10, 31 to 33. And Jesus goes, I've shown you many good works. For which of them are you gonna stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're gonna stone you, but for blasphemy, listen to this, because you being a man, make yourself God. That's John 10, verse 33. You make yourself God. So there's uh, numerous examples like this of people accusing Jesus 
of claiming to be God. And then, listen to this, when he's given the opportunity to, to apologize, to correct them, to, to, to recant them, he simply doesn't do it. Go, go and read all the examples of Jesus constantly. Matthew 26, John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 19. There are many things Jesus taught, which by doing so, he was claiming to be God, which we don't always pick up. That's a big idea as modern Westerners, but which were very clear to the Jews living in the first century. So not only did he kind of say these claims about being God, he also taught things. What did he teach? I'll rip through a few of them. First, he taught people to pray to him. In John chapter 14, you can go look it up. And later he, he, he actually, subsequently, we see people like Stephen in Acts chapter seven and John pray to Jesus. Go read those passages, crazy. He accepted worship. Go read John chapter 21, where they actually start to worship him. He said he was the only way to heaven, right? John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed to come down from heaven, as we already talked about, John chapter 6. He claimed a number of titles which were used in the Old Testament for God. He talked about himself not only with titles and names, like I am that I am, he also used titles that were about God, the shepherd of Israel, the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. He's taking all these and he's going, remember all those things you guys have been talking about, Yahweh? They're me. He lit, So he claims the I am God claims. He teaches things that put him in the place of God. And he also does it in his, his actions. So he doesn't only claim to be God through his words, which are hard enough to deny for any skeptic or religion, but he did things which his own culture recognized only God could do. So miracles are an obvious example. Jesus doing that which only God can do, raising the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine, which much has been written on. And he had complete control over nature and was sovereign over it like, like only God could be which is very true and essential for our understanding and belief of Jesus. But there's a number of other things as well, which have been less focused on among skeptics, which I'll explore for a couple minutes. Let's look at three things that Jesus did to demonstrate to the world that he was God, all of which revolve around Jesus replacing and redrawing kind of incarnational symbols of Judaism around himself. So, so what do I mean by incarnation? Incarnation literally means into meat. Right, so, so like when you go for tacos and you say, give me a carne asada, the word carne is meat, it's into meat. So when you talk about incarnation, God coming into meat. So when people talk of God becoming human, that's what it's talking about. And in Judaism, God by definition does not become a human being as that would be the ultimate humiliation. Numbers 23 already says that, God is not man. But there were symbols in the culture and religion of first century Judaism that pointed to God's presence in the world. Right, so he doesn't become a human. So then how was God ever present in the world? The temple, the Torah, right, which, which is like the, 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 the Bible to them, right? And, and, um, and the concept of God's returning to Jerusalem one day, Yahweh's return to Zion, they called it. All of those three things spoke to the idea that God would somehow be present in the world one day. When he finally moved, to bring justice, peace, and love to flood the whole universe and heal all brokenness, that time in the future. And the scandal for Jews then and today is the realization that Jesus is claiming that he was fulfilling all three of those things 
in all of its fullness and that he himself was bringing the final and climactic healing that the world longed for, but in a very unexpected way. It was through his life and his death and his resurrection. So there's perhaps no passage in the Bible that more powerfully and dramatically states the fact that Jesus is God then. As Paul the Apostle, as a first century Jew, goes back and he rethinks, okay, so Jesus fulfilled, he was the temple, meaning he he would walk around and say, I forgive sin, I'm the presence of God. He was the return of uh, Yahweh to Zion. He's on his donkey and he's coming in. He's the Torah because he's saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you these three things. He relativizes them around himself. But then you need a passage. One of the most powerful is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, meaning held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is so beautiful, but the point is, even that phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, it's it's, it's idea about God in the Old Testament. And so what, what, what Paul has done is he's put Jesus right in the center. Equality with God, not something to be held on to, but he gives it up and he becomes a human being. And then he dies on a cross, which is this beautiful thing that Jesus Christ, guys, doesn't stay distant. He actually enters into our pain and he suffers, which is one of the reasons why Christianity among all the religion in the world is sought after by people because he, he, he identifies with people on the margins. He, he, he suffers, he enters into our pain. He cries, he weeps, he's a mourner. He knows not one passage in the New Testament where Jesus laughs, but he's constantly crying. He mourns over Jerusalem, he cries over his friend. See, the thing is, Jesus enters in and Paul goes, let me just, let me just help you understand who God is. God is the one who suffers. God is the one who enters in. God is the one who became a human being and not only became a human being, he suffered and died on a cross as a servant, as a slave. Why? For you. So all this esoteric debate about, okay, okay, did Jesus claim it? Yes. Did Paul claim it? Yes. He's taking Old Testament passages saying, Jesus is right in the center of it. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is God. So now the question becomes, he died on a cross, he rose again for your sin. Now are you willing to go, I will accept that? Forget all the philosophical thought, clearly clear from the scriptures. Now what does it have to do with my life? He's the one who suffered in my place, died on a cross for my sin, rose again to forgive me of sin. Am I? Do I have the courage enough Because this is what this is going to take. Because in the eyes of the world, you're going to look dumb. I worship a guy. I remember when I first became a Christian, my family looked at me and go, dude, you're part of a cult. I'm like, what are you, I'm not part of a cult. They're like, yeah, you are. And they're like, what did you do today? I'm like, well, I went to church and I drank the blood and ate the flesh of a dead man. Okay, clearly I see what you're saying. They would go, you're crazy. The pressure from friends and family around this idea that I gave my life to a person who claimed to be God is so crazy. Of course the persecution is going to come. Of course the squeeze is going to come. And some of you, the reason you haven't become Christians yet isn't because you're smarter than everyone in the room. It's not because you're better than anyone in the room. It's because you're scared. There's a, there's a cowardice 
that comes out where you're afraid to make this decision because you know the religions won't like you, the non-religions won't like you, your f girlfriend is gonna mock you, your friends at work aren't gonna understand it, your own family might reject you. And the New Testament's holding up going, it's all worth it. Believe me, he claimed to be God, he showed that he was God, and now he's saying, there's only two options in the end. It's almost like every single one of us, through all of history and every one of you watching this right now, you're, when it comes to Jesus, you're, you're one of the two guys on either side of him on the cross. So remember Jesus on the cross and he's crucified with two guys? One of them goes, please, you're a joke. You can't even get yourself down. I'm mocking you. You're not who you claim to be. Whoever you think you are, you're not it. And the other one went, please accept me based on your work on my behalf. I've come to the end of myself. And Jesus goes, today you will join me in paradise. Which one of those two are you going to be? Those two represent every decision of every person all through history. And forget all that, it has to do with what you've decided to do with Jesus. There's going to be a question at the end. You're gonna stand before God and he's gonna say, do you wanna put your record on the table or the record of Jesus on your behalf? And I only find hope in the second one. So God, I do pray for every person who's gathered here today that they would understand that this isn't just a theological, philosophical exercise. This comes down to our soul. Will we accept and follow you, Jesus, as the God of all creation who became a human being, who lived a perfect life in our place, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose again for our salvation? Will we go there humbly or will we reject it? I pray every person watching this, listening to this right now, would accept you as God who came and lived and died and rose again for them. And they'd have the courage to do so. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.